You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Bettina Poschel. In September of 2001, Bettina Puschel came to Ireland from Germany for a holiday here. She was 28 and lived and worked near Munich, sharing a flat with her younger sister Cornelia. Bettina worked for Abendzeitung, a local newspaper, as their arts and culture correspondent. Bettina based herself out of Dublin city for the holiday, where she was staying with a family friend, Holger Sirth and she planned to travel around the east of Ireland, seeing the popular tourist sites within striking distance of the capital. On Tuesday the 25th of September, the last day of her holiday, Bettina had decided to take a day trip up to Meath in order to visit Newgrange, a Neolithic passage tomb famous for marking the winter solstice through its lightbox lintel every December. After taking the train to Drogheda in County Louth, Bettina had intended on either walking the 10 kilometres to the ancient site or taking one of the shuttle buses from Drogheda to the rural area where Newgrange, along with other passage tombs, Nowth and Douth, are located. But Bettina did not arrive back to her friend's city centre flat that Tuesday night and she failed to return to his home the next morning. Nor was Bettina answering her mobile phone. There was no question that Bettina had had a sudden change of plans. She'd been booked on a flight home for Wednesday morning at half past seven, but she did not arrive for that flight. Her tickets remained at Holger Sirth's flat in Dublin, along with all her luggage. On the morning of Wednesday the 26th of September, Holger rang Bettina's family in Germany and then reported his childhood friend missing. Gardy quickly began an investigation into the missing tourist. They soon established that Bettina had gone to Drogheda and was seen at ten past ten that morning walking from the train station in the town and heading in the direction of the bus depot. Searches in and around the farmland surrounding Newgrange began that evening too. Gardy issued a description of Bettina. She was five foot ten inches tall, of slim build with blue eyes and brown or dark blonde hair. She'd been wearing a sky-blue three-quarter length jacket, black trousers, and was carrying a bag that was black, white and red. Bettina also wore distinctive shoes, which were bright red with the logo of the letters PG on the front. After his arrival in Dublin, Bettina's father, speaking to the press early on in the search for his missing daughter, said that Bettina was friendly, but that she wouldn't be the sort to talk to a stranger beyond what would be polite and courteous. Initially, a bus driver who was on the shuttle route out to Newgrange said that Bettina had been on his bus that morning, but then he became less sure that this was the case. There was a possible sighting of the 28-year-old near the crossroads at a village near to Newgrange called Denor at 3pm that day. This was on the Brunaboynia, a route through the County Meath countryside which brings tourists through the ancient landscape of the Boyne Valley, past both Newgrange and the site of the Battle of the Boyne. Bettina's sister Cornelia, who had joined her father Jürgen in the trip to Ireland, also spoke to the press. She said it was possible Bettina had accepted a lift, given that she had undertaken a three-hour walk. Chief Superintendent Michael Finnegan, one of the senior officers on the investigation, told the media, quote, At the moment we are treating this as a missing person inquiry, but there is a concern for her, particularly as she is a foreign national. She has no friends in this area, and her mobile telephone has not been answered for the last two days. On Thursday the 27th, the Garda Sabakwa unit was called in to assist in the search, scouring areas around the River Boyne in the northeast. A Garda helicopter was also used to try and spot any signs of the missing woman in the lush countryside, while the Garda dog unit was brought in to search the fields from the ground. Garda checkpoints were set up in and around the Denor area, stopping passers-by in the town to see if they had any knowledge or sightings of Bettina. 
CCTV footage from the previous Tuesday morning was recovered, showing Bettina getting on the train to Drogheda at half-past nine, with further footage capturing Bettina arriving in Drogheda 35 minutes later. By Friday the 28th, Bettina's family were very concerned. Her father Jürgen and her sister Cornelia said that it was totally out of character for Bettina to be out of contact like this. Jürgen said, quote, It is now four days since we had the last sign, and we hope we get good information in the next hours. We are very worried about her. Going somewhere without telling anybody is totally out of character. Gardi were carrying out door-to-door inquiries in Dinor and handing out questionnaires in the area. They appealed to locals living between Drogheda and Slane, and to particularly those living in and around Dinor and Newgrange's information centre to search their properties and outhouses for any sign of the missing Bettina. Within days of her disappearance, there were whisperings both locally and in the press that this seemed so incredibly similar to cases of missing women that had happened in the last ten years or so. In many of those cases, the women were never seen again. But Gardy said there was nothing to indicate that this was the case with Bettina, and they had hopes that she would be found, and found alive. A Garda spokesperson commented, quote, We have no reports of anything suspicious occurring in the area. There's nothing to indicate foul play. There's just no sign of her. By the following week, the first in the month of October, Gardy still had not located Bettina. They appealed for anyone who had visited Newgrange to check photos or videos taken from there, or taken in and around the Boyne Valley to see if there were any images of Bettina captured inadvertently. It was estimated that 500 people had gone to the Newgrange Visitor Centre the Tuesday before, but there was no CCTV at the doors there which could have confirmed whether Bettina had made it as far as that or not. The security camera system had not been working that day. None of the staff at the visitor centre recalled having seen Bettina there either. Further checkpoints were to be set up on Tuesday the 2nd of October in order to try and speak to people who may only travel into the Boyne Valley area on a weekly basis in the hopes that further information might be gathered. General searches of the Bruna Boyne area continued while Gardi tried to establish Bettina's precise movements from that day. Gardi located CCTV from a shop in John Street, Drogheda, which captured footage of Bettina passing by the spot at 26 minutes past 10 that morning. It was now thought more likely that she had undertaken the walk out to Newgrange, rather than having taken public transport. Cornelia Puschel told the Drogheda Independent newspaper, quote, I feel very bad about Bettina's disappearance. I hope we will find her because it would be very hard for me to leave this country if I don't know where she is. I mean, her shoes, her checkbook, nothing has been found. As the week progressed with still no sign of the missing woman, it was reported on the 15th of October that Gardi had begun reviewing CCTV from the ferry port and airport in Belfast for any signs of Bettina in order to rule out the possibility that she might have left the country via the north. That week, her father and sister were to make their third trip to Ireland for meetings with Gardy for any updates on the case. Forty officers were assigned to the case at that point and dog units were to search an extended area in the Boyne Valley. Repeat dives were being undertaken by the Sabakwa unit every few days in the hopes that fresh clues might be found. Gardy were examining video and photographs that had been handed over from members of the public from the day of Bettina's disappearance, taken in and around Newgrange. Chief Superintendent Michael Flanagan told the Irish Times, quote, Hundreds of statements have been taken, thousands of people have been interviewed, and all the houses from Drogheda to Dunor have been visited. Members of the Operation Trace team were also tasked to assist in the search, though the superintendent was anxious to point out that there were no links between Bettina's case and any other missing persons cases from the previous ten years. Garda air, water and dog units continued to comb the land around Newgrange and the Boyne Valley and were joined by large numbers of locals concerned for the welfare of the missing 28-year-old. Groups met every morning at the GAA club in Dunor to coordinate the searches and set out areas to be combed through each day. House-to-house inquiries continued, as did roadblocks in the area. Posters with Bettina's face went up all over Meath. 
Superintendent Eamon Courtney from Navan said that the local knowledge provided during the searches was invaluable and urged anyone who was able to help to join in. He also reiterated that it was better for a person to report something that might ultimately be unimportant than to decide against contacting Gardi, as no detail was too small to give some indication of what had become of Bettina. Meanwhile, back in Germany, Bettina's mother, Mimi, got news of the investigation via newspaper clippings sent to her by Jürgen. She told the Evening Herald that she felt helpless and being in a state of unknowing was tormenting her. Adding to her fears were reports carried in Irish papers which suggested that Bettina might be a victim of an unknown serial killer roaming Leinster, responsible for the disappearances of Annie McCarrick, Jojo Dollard and Deirdre Jacobs. But she said she had to put the notion that Bettina had been killed, that she was dead, out of her mind, or she would not be able to carry on. Garda sources spoke to reporters and said that the similarities between Bettina's case and the ones included in Operation Trace meant that the possibility couldn't be totally ruled out. The women had disappeared while out walking alone. There was no sign of a struggle in any case and no bodies had been found. Back in Dublin, Jürgen Puschel had called on the Irish mobile phone company, ESAT Digiphone, to look into records of a call placed to Bettina's phone on the night she disappeared. The call had not been answered, but the phone did ring. He hoped that location data might be available which would point searchers in the direction of, at the very least, Bettina's missing phone. The case was also featured on RTE's Crimeline programme, and 30 calls were received after this, but some of the information was contradictory. It seemed the Gardaí were no closer to finding Bettina. This episode is sponsored in part by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take work, and that includes the most important one you have in your life, your relationship with yourself. A lot of us will drop anything to go and help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? Self-care, of course, includes fancy face masks and bubble baths, but what has a longer-lasting effect is working on my self-esteem, therapy, doing my ADHD coaching and journaling every day. I'll carry all of this into the future with me as a healthier and more content person. I have done a lot of therapy in the last two years, and honestly, it has been life-changing. It's not always as easy as slapping on a face mask or doing my nails, but it has been worth it. And this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does, and therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Mens Rea listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash mens. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash M-E-N-S. Then, on the afternoon of Wednesday the 17th of October, the partially decomposed body of a woman was recovered from dense undergrowth a number of yards beyond the main road from Drogheda to Denor. The body was found by members of the Garda search teams out looking for Bettina, at the bottom of a steep embankment just after 12pm. This location was less than half a mile from the place thought to be the last potential sighting of Bettina. The area is highly rural, with narrow and winding country roads, despite the high tourist traffic evident in the numerous B&Bs. The man who lived at the nearest house, about 50 yards from the discovery, Frank Godfrey, who was also the former mayor of Drogheda, told reporters that, on the day Bettina had taken her trip to the area, a woman had called to his door, asking for directions to Newgrange. He said this often happened, given he lived close to the megalithic site. 
Mr. Godfrey thought the woman in this instance was Bettina Poschel, as the woman had told him that she was German, and said that he was shocked and very upset at the discovery so near to his home. Mr. Godfrey continued, quote, It's a very emotional time for all the people of Denor. This is a peaceful place without any crime. I have lived over 20 years in this community, and this is one of the saddest days of my life. Frank Godfrey said that the hearts and prayers of the Denor community were with Bettina's family. Another person who lived nearby, Ms. Mary Condra, said it was not unusual that someone might decide to make the journey out to Newgrange by foot, and that many young people undertook the 10-kilometre walk to the site, which was just three kilometres from Denor. A Garda cordon was erected around the roadside and Dr John Harbison arrived out to the scene for preliminary examination. After this, the body was moved to Our Lady's Hospital in Navan for a post-mortem to take place. Examination in situ was made difficult by the conditions in the area, as the undergrowth edging the road was very heavy indeed. Only the Garda who had made the discovery was allowed near to the body until the state pathologist arrived in order to preserve the scene. Meanwhile, in Germany, Bettina's father and sister changed their travel plans and began to make their way to Ireland, as it seemed clear that Bettina had now finally been found. Jürgen said, quote, We are just sitting here with the rest of our family and we are finding it very hard to believe what has happened. Gardy appealed to the public again, this time for anyone who had seen anything suspicious in the area of the discovery on the 25th of September, underlining again that things that may seem insignificant to a member of the public may in fact be important information for the Gardee, and that no detail was too small to report. A representative from the Garda press office, Inspector Ray McHugh, said that the discovery of the body was being treated as suspicious and would not say that Bettina's case had been upgraded to a murder inquiry, nor would he give any further details of the condition of the body found and he said he couldn't confirm an identity. Gardie told the press that it was possible that the body could be somebody who was struck by a passing car. The following day, Bettina's family were advised that it might be some time before the body could be identified with certainty, and that if they wished, they could put off their trip to Ireland for a number of days. The media learned that this was due to the level of decomposition of the remains, It appeared that the body had lain at the roadside for a number of weeks and that identification would have to be established through either dental records or through DNA. The state of the body and the period of time it had been out in the open suggested that death may have occurred in and around the time of Bettina's disappearance. They also said there was no way to rule out the possibility that a car accident had played a role in the death and that the body had then been moved off the road and concealed after the fact. By Friday, October 19th, Gurdie were still awaiting results of the post-mortem, and without that, there was just no way to know what might have happened. The Perschel family decided to follow Garda advice and were expected to arrive in Ireland in the following weeks. Bettina's father Jürgen had given a blood sample to Gurdie on a previous visit, which would assist Gurdie in their attempts at identification. It was reported that the post-mortem was expected to take a number of days more. On Monday the 22nd of October, the inquiry into Bettina's case was finally upgraded and was described as having the hallmarks of a, quote, full-scale murder inquiry. The Irish Times revealed that it was believed that the body had signs of severe neck injuries and that it was unlikely that the woman had been killed where she was found. House-to-house inquiries continued in the Donor area in light of the discovery of Bettina's body. On the same day, the Irish Examiner reported that Gardie had already interviewed three men in relation to Bettina's death and were interested in speaking to a number of workers at a building site on the Dublin-Belfast motorway project. This work site was just a mile from the dump site. Further, investigators planned to seek voluntary DNA samples from a number of men from the Dnor and Drogheda areas. Three days later, DNA results were finally in, which confirmed that the remains found some 40 feet off the road in Dnor were indeed that of Bettina Puschel. But the Irish Examiner reported that there were to be even further post-mortem examinations carried out in another attempt to identify Bettina's cause of death. 
It was thought that she had been sexually assaulted and then strangled, but findings from Dr. Harbison might take another week. Extensive tests were carried out by the state pathologist, but given the state that the remains had been recovered in, it was proving difficult to establish what had happened to Bettina conclusively. The Puschel family in Munich were being kept updated by Gardi and would remain in close contact with investigators. Elsewhere in the investigation, Gardi were following 700 lines of inquiry. They continued their search in the Boyne Valley, centred around the village of Denor for a number of personal items belonging to Bettina. Items such as Bettina's shoes had yet to be found. Police hoped these items would help in identifying who was responsible for her death. It was also hoped that DNA present on the body or clothing might help in the investigation. A handbag had also been found along the same stretch of road, which was thought to be Miss Pershall's. Gardy said that they had asked up to 40 men to come in to give blood samples. They had drawn up a list of people in the area with previous convictions of a sexual nature, or who had been suspects in such cases. A Garda source told the Irish Times that, quote, we are throwing the net wide on this one. The Pushels would travel to Dublin to claim Bettina's body once her remains had been released by Dr. Harbison. Then, in the early morning of Saturday the 27th of October, just after 7am, three people were arrested in relation to Bettina's murder at two addresses in Drogheda. A man was arrested in a home in Drogheda town, and a man and a woman were picked up from a housing estate off the Denor Road. This estate was just three miles or so from the spot where Bettina's remains had been recovered. The two men were described as being in their late thirties, while the woman was thought to be in her mid-thirties. All three were taken to Drogheda Garda Station for questioning. The following evening, one of the men appeared at a special sitting of the District Court at RD. 39-year-old Michael Murphy of Drogheda was charged with Bettina's murder. The other man and woman who had been held on suspicion of withholding information were released without charge. In court, a Garda outlined that Michael Murphy had been charged with murder at Drogheda Garda Station at 8.24pm and had made no comment in response. Paddy Goodwin, a solicitor appearing for Michael Murphy, informed the district court judge that there would be no application made at that time for bail, but he did request a psychiatric report to be prepared on his client. At the end of the brief hearing, Michael Murphy was remanded in custody. A small group of people had arrived at the court to jeer and shout at him as he was led out to the prison van. By this stage, Professor Harbison still had not determined the cause of death. The results of his examinations were listed as inconclusive. Reports stated that because of this, the coroner would not be able to release Bettina's body until the circumstances of her death were further clarified. A simple service of remembrance was held in a local church in Munich by the Pöschel family when it was clear that there may be a long wait before they were able to bring Bettina home for a proper burial. Books of condolences were opened in Drogheda and Dinor for members of the public to express their sympathies to the Pöschel family. Flowers were placed on the roadside near to where Bettina's body had been recovered, and locals had been keeping a single candle lit there in her memory. On the 14th of November, the Pöschel family made their way to County Meath, where they visited the place where Bettina's body was found. After their return to Munich, Jürgen Pöschel said he had been disappointed not to be able to return to Germany with Bettina's remains, and that the family were unable to properly grieve until Bettina was brought home. The coroner's office told the Evening Herald, quote, It gives us no pleasure to put the family of the dead girl through further grief. However, it's necessary to keep the body in case further DNA evidence is needed when the case against the suspect is heard by the courts. Mr. Pöschel said he understood the authorities were doing what procedure called for, but the family were anxious to bring Bettina home. In early December 2001, Jürgen Pöschel wrote an open letter to the people of County Meath. He said that the Pöschel family wanted to hold a memorial service for Bettina when they finally got her body back from the coroner, expected to be sometime early in 2002. Jürgen also hoped they might erect a memorial at the place where Bettina's body had been found along the Drogheda to Denor Road. They had been devastated to get the news that there would be further delays in the release of Bettina's body. 
By the end of the month, the Sunday Independent reported that this delay was due to the difficulty in establishing cause of death at post-mortem. It was feared that the accused defence team might look for an independent post-mortem or testing to be carried out, which would not be possible if Bettina's remains were cremated, as was the Poshal's family wishes, which might cause problems if and when a trial for murder got underway. This was an unprecedented delay in the release of a body by the coroner. Nothing like it had ever happened before, which indicated the degree of caution and worry that the state seemed to think was appropriate in the case. In January of 2002, Michael Murphy was denied bail at the High Court due to the weight of evidence in the case and, as the judge, held a belief that Murphy would commit further crimes if released. A month later, the news finally came that Bettina's body was to be released back to her family. And so then, on Sunday the 12th of May, the Pershaw family and some of Bettina's friends returned to the small village in County Meath to attend a special mass in Bettina's memory in St Mary's Church, Denor. On Monday the 12th of January 2004, Michael Murphy appeared in the Central Criminal Court to face the charge of murdering Bettina Pershaw before Mr Justice Dermot O'Donovan and a jury of eight men and four women. There, Murphy entered a plea of not guilty. However, the following day the court was informed that the presiding judge had become ill and was now unable to attend. The jury was discharged and a date was set for the following week for proceedings to begin again with a new judge and a fresh jury. The trial began again then on the 20th of January 2004, this time before Mr Justice Andreas O'Queeve and a jury of seven men and five women. Michael Murphy, for a second time, denied the charge of murdering Bettina Pershall in September or October of 2001. Paddy McEntee, senior counsel, headed up his defence. Dennis von Buckley gave the opening statement on behalf of the state, outlining for the jury that Bettina had gone to Drogheda on the 25th of September 2001, which was confirmed by both CCTV and sightings of local people in and around Denor. But it was the prosecution's case that Bettina never arrived at Newgrange that day. Instead, her body was recovered three weeks later along the road into Denor. Various personal items confirmed by the family to be Bettina's were found along the same road and also thrown in a skip not far away. Suspicious behaviour was noted by locals on the night Bettina disappeared. A car and a man were seen near where Bettina's body had been dumped. The car had been traced and belonged to the accused. In addition, Mr Vaughan Buckley said that the jury would hear Michael Murphy had not been on his work site the entire day as normal on the 25th of September 2001, and he had been seen with a large container of cleaning fluid. Cleaning fluid was found on items of Bettina's clothing. Finally, DNA would also link the accused to the German woman's remains. Testimony began when Garda Pat Kelly described for the court having found Bettina's body. He had first spotted something he thought was a roll of lino dumped into a field, planted in recent years as a small forest, running alongside the road. Garda Kelly recounted the moment for the court, saying, quote, I had to beat my way in with the stick. I had to force my way in. I continued along and suddenly I saw something there that didn't go with the vegetation in the area. I didn't know what it was at first. I thought it was a roll of old kitchen lino initially. I got about six to eight foot further in and I realised it wasn't lino. I stopped and gathered my thoughts and realised it was human remains. I backed off immediately, having noticed the jacket. It was then I knew it must be Bettina. According to reporter Sorka Crowley, who was present in the court, the Garda appeared shaken as he recalled the gruesome discovery. Photos taken from video captured at a petrol station on the day Bettina went missing were then shown to the court. The accused had called into the place at least five times that day. It was located not far from where Bettina was found. Detective Garda John Fitzpatrick brought the jury through the series of stills of the accused stopping at the petrol station on the road to Newgrange in his black Honda Civic. Murphy was seen there on the day Bettina disappeared at 10.03, 1.03, 1.24, 2.09 and then 4.30pm. 
The court was shown footage of Bettina in Connolly Station and passing by an auctioneer's in Drogheda Town. Kenneth Martins took to the stand and said he had seen Bettina at 11.35, the day she disappeared. Mr Martins, a local businessman, recalled that he had seen a woman walking on the road to Denor. A local woman, Mrs Mary McCabe, told the court that that Tuesday in 2001, she had seen Bettina walking on the road not far from a quarry at Denor. The woman the witness saw had a shoulder bag and was wearing glasses, and it had struck Mrs McCabe that Bettina didn't have an umbrella. It was a wet day and Mrs McCabe thought that the woman would be sorry to be without one. After this, Siobhan Byrne, a student from the Denor area, testified that she had seen a man and a black car in the vicinity of McWeedy's Lane, also known locally as Mad Joe's Lane, on the night Bettina disappeared. It was about eight o'clock and the car, a Honda Civic, had come from the Drogheda direction. She'd been sitting on a wall not far from the Malacrone Quarry with two of her friends at the time. This black car stopped at the spot for four or five minutes and then drove off back towards Drogheda. Then, ten minutes later, the car came back and parked up again at the lane, a spot only 400 metres from where Bettina's body was found. This time a lorry had driven by and when its headlights landed on where the Honda Civic was, Ms Byrne said she had seen a figure of what she presumed to be a man from the person's build. He was running up the laneway. A short time later, the car drove off, headed in the direction of Denor. On the third day of the trial, Wednesday the 21st of January, Holgar Norbert Sertl, the friend that Bettina had been staying with in Dublin, took to the stand. Mr Sertle had gone to school with Bettina and had moved to Dublin in 2001 when he started working for an IT company. Mr Sertle told the court that Bettina had arrived in Dublin on Friday the 21st of September. They'd had dinner and spent the weekends visiting the tourist highlights of Dublin, Kalini and Bray. On Monday, while he was at work, Bettina had taken one of the buses that brought day-trippers out to the old monastic site in County Wicklow, Glendalock. She'd returned that evening to the apartment and spent time with the witness when he returned from work. Holger recalled that he had gotten up early for work on Tuesday the 25th of September 2001. Before he left, Bettina had told the witness that she was going to visit Newgrange. She planned to take the train to Drogheda and then make the walk from there to the visitor centre, 10 kilometres away. But that evening, Bettina didn't return. Holger said he texted her to say he would be late back to the apartment because he had a meeting late that afternoon, but Bettina had not responded. When the meeting finished up at eight o'clock or so, Holger tried ringing Bettina, but she didn't pick up. He rang her every ten or fifteen minutes then as his worry began to grow. At half past eleven, he tried to head into bed, but he couldn't sleep. He was incredibly worried about his friend. The next morning, after a broken night's sleep, Bettina had still not returned. Holger decided to ring Bettina's home in Munich. Before he left for work that morning, Mr. Sertel spoke to Bettina's father and sister, and later that day, Mr. Sertel reported Bettina missing to Gardi. The witness was then shown a clip of CCTV taken from Connolly Station on the morning of the 25th of September. He confirmed that a woman waiting on the platform for the Enterprise service to Belfast was Bettina. After this, Cornelia Poschel gave evidence. She told the court that Bettina was a friendly person and a seasoned traveller, as she had taken frequent trips all over Europe. It was entirely out of character for her to be out of touch. Cornelia was shown the personal items found near Bettina's body and in the graveyard in Denor and identified them as her sister's. Cornelia told the court that she had received a text message from Bettina the Sunday before she went missing, where Bettina said she was doing well, she was on a beach and having a good time. Then, Detective Inspector Brendan McArdle described going out to the place where Bettina had been found. He said it was hard to find and continued, quote, I came upon the body of a dead woman. She was lying face down and was naked from the waist down apart from the black panties that were around her knees. Her upper body was covered in a blue jacket and initially her head was not visible as it was separated from the trunk of her body. The court heard then from Dr Harpal Singh Gurjal, who had also attended the scene where Bettina Pushel's body was discovered on the side of the road on October 17, 2001. 
He'd pronounced her dead and told the court that he'd observed that the remains were in advanced stages of decomposition and that her head was, quote, completely detached from the body. She was lying down on her abdomen, face down. He told the court, quote, that scene was printed in my mind. I can never forget what I had seen. On Friday the 23rd, Detective Garda Thomas Carey, a forensics expert, told the court that the remains discovered off the Drogheda to Denor Road were skeletal in parts. Bettina's head had been covered in ground vegetation. There was no grass or mud stains on her feet. He found a small button like that from a shirt on her skin and a small piece of metal on her leg. No scratches were found on the soles of her feet either, which one would expect if she had made her way out to the spot herself. A local man, James Leonard, gave evidence then and said he had cycled past the crime scene the day after Bettina's disappearance and saw a jeep and a car parked near the spot. Two men were talking there. The morning after that, he cycled past again and saw a small black car with one of the men sitting in the car. He was thin-faced with black hair and was just staring straight ahead. On seeing a photo of the accused in a newspaper later, he felt that the man he had seen was very similar to the photo in the paper of Michael Murphy. Then John Harbison appeared to outline the findings of his post-mortem examination. By this stage, Dr. Harbison was retired from the position of state pathologist. The former state pathologist told the court that he was of the opinion that Miss Poeschel had been killed elsewhere and that her body had then been dumped in the location where she was found. The area was described as a densely vegetated copse, and Dr. Harbison said it was possible someone could have been force-marched there, given that it was, quote, not the place where a young lady would go on invitation. Given the various options of how Bettina's body might have come to be there, Harbison had concluded it was most likely that she had been dumped after the murder took place elsewhere. The former state pathologist told the court that he had returned to the site the following day in order to search for a number of vertebrae and Bettina's larynx, which were missing from her remains. Her skull had been detached, Harbison said likely due to disturbance from wildlife, and he'd hoped that finding these missing remains would help him form a cause of death. Dr. Harbison was able to locate the missing vertebrae, but did not locate the larynx. When he was cross-examined by Mr. Paddy McEntee, Dr. Harbison outlined that he had concluded Bettina Puschel's remains had lain in the spot on the side of the road for some time. The area appeared otherwise undisturbed and overgrown, and in fact, some ivy had grown out over her leg. Given the weather and the time of year, early autumn, it was quite possible that she had lain there from the day of her disappearance to the day she was discovered. Dr. Harbison disclosed that Bettina's body had been in such a poor state when she was recovered that he had been unable to determine the cause of death. He could see no signs of any major injury. Quote, there was no evidence of head injury, no question of any stabbing in the abdomen. Given this, he could say only that the cause of death had been due to some sort of assault on her. Because of Bettina's otherwise good health, natural causes was not her likely cause of death. The former state pathologist was followed on the witness stand by forensic scientist Martina McBride. Ms. McBride testified that vaginal swabs had been taken from Bettina Puschel's remains and had been tested. This had confirmed the presence of semen. There was also semen staining found on black underwear, found on Bettina's body, but these had been doused in a substance similar to Jay's fluid or some other disinfectant and had been sent elsewhere for further testing. The use of this liquid was apparent because of the strong smell it had given off. Despite efforts to destroy any usable DNA present on Bettina's body, there was a DNA profile developed from the biological matter. The blue Gore-Tex jacket that Bettina had been wearing had also been doused in the fluid and had the same disinfectant smell. Bettina's shoes had been found in a skip near Denor. They were also forensically tested. A piece of leather was missing from the inside of one shoe, and it matched a piece of red leather which was located in the grass at the scene where Bettina's body was recovered. Ms. McBride outlined that a button and a metal clasp from a waistband found on Bettina's body matched a pair of black trousers found in the skip along with the shoes discovered. Ms. McBride said, quote, The clasp found on the body fitted neatly into the missing clasp gap on the waistband of the trousers. 
John Clark also gave evidence on the fifth day of the trial. He was a painting and decorating contractor from Drogheda. Mr. Clark told the court he had seen Michael Murphy drive past him in a car heading in the direction of Drogheda on the day Bettina disappeared. The car was very dark in colour. Mr. Clark said that sitting next to Murphy in the car was a fair-haired woman, whose hair fell to her shoulders. He'd spotted the car at, quote, three minutes to two exactly on the day Bettina Poshall had travelled to Drogheda. He knew Michael Murphy's father and had known Michael Murphy himself a long time, so this was how he'd recognised the man in the car as the accused. A man who worked alongside Murphy on the motorway project near to Denor was on the stand next. Paddy McKay said that the day of Bettina's disappearance, he remembered that the defendant had kept leaving the site, saying he was off to speak to a man about a pump that Murphy was working on. According to Mr. McKay, Michael Murphy was away for periods of 10 minutes to half an hour and longer. This had happened four or five times that day, which was unusual. At one point, he and the defendant had been talking about dogs. Mr. McKay said that Murphy had a container with some sort of cleaning fluid in it, and Murphy had said that this disinfectant was good for his purposes. Then Alan Lynch, a foreman working on the motorway site, recalled for the court that Michael Murphy had told him he had hurt his back on the 26th of September and asked if he could go to the doctor. The defendant had told Alan Lynch that he'd hurt it at home, not working on the pipes on the motorway site. Then the court heard from Garda Charles O'Hanlon of Drogheda Garda Station. Garda O'Hanlon told the court that he was conducting house-to-house inquiries in the days after the discovery of Bettina Pichel's body. He had interviewed Michael Murphy, the accused, at Rathmullen Park on the 20th of October, 2001, in the course of these routine calls. The accused was calm when speaking to the guardee. His girlfriend was in and out of the room and neither could recall if Murphy had come home on that particular day for lunch or not. Both said that they had seen nothing unusual on September 25th. Murphy had commented that he had pulled a muscle in work that Tuesday and had been off work for four days after. The following week, on Monday the 26th of January 2004, Dr. Michael O'Brien, a GP from Drogheda, said that Michael Murphy had attended his clinic on the 26th of September 2001 for issues he was having with his back. Murphy told the doctor the pain had begun when he had bent down to tie his shoelaces. After this, Michael Murphy's father, Larry, said that the accused had called to his house around the 21st of September and asked if he could move back in with the witness. At the time, Michael Murphy had been living elsewhere with his girlfriend. According to Larry, Michael had told him that nothing he seemed to do would satisfy his girlfriend and that was why he wanted to move back into the family home. On the stand, Larry Murphy also remembered that his son had at some point mentioned hurting his back and he'd said that the injury had happened at work, but that was the last Larry Murphy heard of it. The accused had mentioned it only the once. In court that day, a number of men that worked with Michael Murphy also gave evidence. There were three men that Murphy had agreed to provide lifts to and from the worksite every day, a task he was compensated for. All three were originally from Latvia and were living in Drogheda. First, Reynolds Baumanis gave evidence to the court via a translator. Mr Baumanis was asked whether Michael Murphy had taken a tea break with him at 10am on the morning of Bettina's disappearance. Mr. Baumanis said that as far as he could recollect, Michael Murphy had not joined them. Rather, the witness told the court that the accused said he'd gone into Drogheda at around that time as he had a doctor's appointment. Another of the three, Mr. Audrey Kratnish, gave evidence agreeing with the previous witness. Mr. Kratnish said that he did not think the accused was on the building site the entire day of the 25th of September as the men had stopped work to have a cigarette and Murphy's car was not parked in its usual place. The witness also recalled that Murphy had said he had had a doctor's appointment that morning. Then Mr Aldous Grazies gave evidence, again confirming that the accused had not joined them for their tea break that morning at 10am. He told the court that he knew Murphy had left the site, but he did not know for sure whether the accused had attended the doctor. The three workmates all told the court that Mr Murphy had driven them home that evening as normal. The trial then adjourned for legal argument to resume on Thursday the 29th. 
However, the jury were sent away that day, too, with Mr Justice O'Queeve telling them that they would return the next week on Tuesday. Six days later, on Wednesday the 4th of February, evidence resumed when Detective Paul Gilton took to the stand. Detective Garda Gilton had called to see Murphy at his workplace on the Denor Interchange on the morning of the 24th of October 2001 and asked him to attend at the Garda station. Murphy said he had to get someone to replace him on the work site and then came to the Garda station at 20 minutes to 12 and gave a cautioned statement. Murphy told the Garda that he was in a relationship which was on and off. Michael Murphy said he had collected his work colleagues, the three Latvian men, as usual on the 25th of September and went to work. When Murphy got on site, he tried to contact the foreman, Alan Lynch, and the group had then hung around waiting to hear from Mr Lynch. After a while, Murphy said he'd left and gone to his girlfriend's house. She wasn't there. He went back to work and got to the site at 10.35. Murphy couldn't say whether he had left the site again before 1pm, but at some point he had driven up the Denor Road and then went to his girlfriend's to have lunch. He got back to work about five minutes late. During the interview, Murphy was shown a picture of Bettina and he said he didn't remember having seen her. He signed the statement in the presence of Garda Gilton and his own solicitor. A sample of his hair was taken voluntarily as well. The detective Garda told the court that Murphy had been arrested on the morning of Saturday the 27th of October 2001 after Gardy received DNA results which linked Michael Murphy to the biological matter found on Bettina Puschel's body. Murphy was first asked about the contents of his previous statement but the accused said that he wanted to speak to his solicitor and would not answer any questions. When the interview resumed just before 2pm, he asked to speak to his girlfriend, who had also been arrested that morning. A memo taken by Gardie of what was purported to have been said during this visit was read to the court. The girlfriend had asked Murphy if he did it, and the accused was alleged to have replied, What do you think? She then repeated the question, pressing, quote, Tell me, did you do it? Then Murphy had apparently said, I'm sorry. Once more, the woman had asked Michael Murphy outright to say if he had killed Bettina and to tell the truth. The accused had then snapped at his girlfriend, telling her not to raise her voice, and asked her to leave. After this, Gardy returned to the room. Garda Gilton told the court that Michael Murphy had been visibly shaking. He was trembling. The guards had asked the accused to tell them what had happened, and according to Detective Garda Gilton, Murphy had put his head in his hands and began to cry. The interviewing detectives proceeded to ask Murphy what had happened the day of Bettina's disappearance. Detective Garda Gilton told the court, quote, I felt he was going to admit to me what he had done to Bettina Puschel, and so I pressed on and asked him what happened. I asked him, how did you kill her, Michael? The accused had then said that he didn't want to say anything more about it and began apologising, saying he was sorry. It was then, after almost eight hours of questioning, Detective Garda Gilton said the accused had broken down crying and made statements that the Garda believed were admissions to the murder. Murphy had said, quote, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Just tell that girl's parents I'm sorry for taking her life and for what I did to her. I'm so, so sorry, end quote. According to the witness, Michael Murphy had then seen his solicitor and refused to sign the memo of the questioning. Paddy McEntee asked Garda Gilton why it was that the visit with Michael Murphy's girlfriend had been allowed, saying wasn't it inappropriate for two people under arrest at the time to meet. McEntee also asked why questioning had continued, given the description of Murphy as visibly shaken and upset. McEntee put it to Garda Gilton that the statements the court had heard had not happened. In response, Garda Gilton said he had taken down Michael Murphy's exact words. Garda Gilton was on the stand for almost seven hours, over two days. On Thursday the 5th of February, Garda Inspector Jerry O'Brien gave evidence in the case. He described how, after the accused had made a brief appearance at the district court in Drogheda, and while having lunch in a cell in Drogheda Garda Station, Murphy had made a number of statements to the witness. Murphy had told him that he'd gone back to the site where he'd left Bettina's body, He'd removed a number of items of her clothing and then hid these in a skip at the graveyard. The statement had come about after the accused had asked the Garda inspector for a cigarette 
and Inspector O'Brien had asked if there was anything else Murphy needed or that he, the witness, could do for him. Murphy had told the inspector that he'd been working on the motorway and had some money, and he wanted this money to go to his mother. The inspector had rang Murphy's solicitor so these arrangements could be made. After the accused was finished with the call, he had turned to the inspector and asked him why he, the inspector, was being so kind to him, the accused, given everything that Murphy had done. Murphy had apologised again, saying he was sorry for everything. Murphy then asked about Bettina's family, asking how they were. He also asked if Gardy had found, quote, the red shoes yet. Mr. Murphy was alleged to have said, quote, Look, I went back to the body two or three days later. I took the red shoes and the trousers and hid them in the graveyard in Denor. Have you found them? On hearing this, the inspector went and found another Garda member and made notes of what Murphy had said to him in front of this other officer. Murphy had nodded then to confirm that the notes taken were correct. Inspector O'Brien then sent another Garda to the graveyard to ascertain if there was a skip there, and shortly after, he got a call to say that there was. Inside, mud-stained trousers, red shoes and black socks were found. They were shown to the court and Inspector O'Brien confirmed that these were what had been found. The inspector said at no time had he questioned Murphy. The statements had been made entirely spontaneously and without any probing for information. He denied trying to ingratiate himself with the defendant by being nice to him, saying he had simply meant to be kind to him and had had no ulterior motive. The court then heard from Detective Sergeant Jared McGrath, who had also questioned Michael Murphy on the day of his arrest. Detective Sergeant McGrath had asked Murphy why it was that a number of people had related to Gardy various reasons why Murphy had said he had hurt his back. Why were there so many versions of what had caused the pain? Murphy had simply responded, I can't say. According to Gardy, when informed that his DNA had matched semen samples recovered from Bettina's body, Murphy had begun to visibly shake. Murphy had responded when pressed on how this material had come to be there, quote, I can't talk about this, just charge me with it. He would not explain himself. On Monday the 9th of February, beginning the fourth week in the trial of Michael Murphy, Dr Maureen Smith, the head of the DNA unit at Garda headquarters, gave evidence. A DNA profile had been developed from Bettina Puschel's remains and another was developed from a hair sample from Michael Murphy. On examination of vaginal swabs taken from Bettina Puschel's body, the presence of bodily fluids from more than one person was identified. Dr. Smith said that the major contributor of the DNA in that sample was identified as Michael Murphy, with a minor contribution from Bettina Puschel. The match to Michael Murphy was estimated to have less than one in a thousand million likelihood of belonging to anyone other than Michael Murphy. Dr. Smith noted, though, that Mr. Murphy had brothers, so there was a one in 30,000 chance that one of these could have the same profile. Closing speeches were heard by the jury on Wednesday, the 11th of February, 2004. Dennis Von Buckley for the DPP told the jury that there was overwhelming evidence against the accused Michael Murphy. Murphy's own comments on the day of his arrest to Gardee amounted to an admission that he had killed Bettina. Just tell the girl's parents I'm sorry for taking her life and for what I did to her, he'd said. Mr. Von Buckley addressed the jury asserting, quote, That is an admission I would submit that the accused took the life of Bettina Puschel. The jury could infer guilt from that. In addition, Murphy had known the location of personal items belonging to Bettina Puschel and his DNA had matched semen found on Bettina's remains. Michael Murphy was guilty of murder, Dennis Von Buckley said. Paddy McEntee told the jury to be on guard and open-minded when considering the evidence before them. Mr McEntee reminded the jury that the cause of Ms Puschel's death had never been established and said they would have to weigh the evidence that they had heard from Garda statements. McEntee asked, quote, What is he sorry about? Some sort of inappropriate move? Does it prove that he killed her? The state, he said, was expecting them to, quote, construe I'm sorry as guilt. The semen found on Bettina's body, McEntee argued, proved only that Michael Murphy had perhaps had sexual intercourse with Bettina, but did not prove that he'd killed her. 
The defense counsel put it to the jury that the DNA evidence the jury had heard had given a statistical probability, and no more than that. McEntee said DNA, quote, never goes beyond a statistical probability. The charge to the jury followed on Tuesday the 12th of February by Andreas O'Queeve, and afterwards the seven men and five women were sent out to deliberate. The jury spent the night in a hotel and returned the following day to continue their discussions. And so, on Friday the 13th of February, after nearly five and a half hours of deliberations, the jury returned with their verdict. They had found Michael Murphy guilty of the brutal murder of Bettina Puschel. Murphy had no reaction when the verdict was read aloud by the clerk, just continued to slowly chew the gum he had in his mouth. Murphy had spent the entirety of the trial staring off away from everyone else sitting in the court. He made eye contact with no one, not the witnesses or anyone in the public gallery. It was noted by reporters in the court that, in fact, before the jury came in, Murphy was chatting and laughing with prison guards, and he'd had a Mars bar and a Lucasade Sport. During the sentencing portion of proceedings before Murphy's mandatory life sentence was handed down, the court was told that he had a number of previous convictions. Not only had Michael Murphy served time for charges of larceny, armed robbery and assault, in 1983 he'd been convicted of manslaughter. He had served nine years of a 12-year sentence after being found guilty of strangling a 64-year-old woman named Catherine Carroll in Drogheda. Mrs. Carroll had been making her way home that night, walking alone. In addition, Michael Murphy had served a six-month sentence after attacking two young women in Drogheda in 1997. In this incident, Murphy had come up behind them and grabbed both by the neck, trying to pull them to the ground as they walked home from a disco in Drogheda. At sentencing, Mr. Justice O'Queeve commented that he hoped the verdict would provide some measure of closure in what had no doubt been a very difficult time for the Pushel family. When Michael Murphy was led out of the court, Jimmy Cunningham, writing for the Drogheda Independent, asked him if he had anything to say. According to the reporter, Murphy had laughed and responded he did not. Shortly after, when Murphy was brought out to the prison van waiting to take him to Clover Hill, a passing man jeered at him, calling Murphy a dirty murdering bastard. Murphy was heard to tell the other man to fuck off. Jürgen and Cornelia Puschel spoke to the media on the steps of the court and said that they were relieved with the verdict. Mr. Puschel said, quote, It makes a closure of a bad chapter for my family. I want to thank the Gardaí for their investigations and support. I want also to thank the local community in Denor and Drogheda for their assistance and for the sympathy they have shown us during all this time. In the days after the verdict, the Puschel family travelled to Denor, where they visited the local primary school. They presented the principal with a cheque for €8,000, an amount they had received from the Irish state after Bettina's death. They also planted a tree in Bettina's memory in the grounds of the school, with a stone next to it which read, Always in our thoughts. The gift to the school was a thank you for the students' participation in a memorial service and for sending artwork to the Pochel family. A number of investigators on the case and Gardi from Drogheda spoke to the press after the conclusion of Michael Murphy's trial. On the day of the verdict and sentencing, Inspector Jerry O'Brien spoke officially and on the record as lead investigator to the media and said, quote, a lot of people gave a lot of effort and we tried to reconstruct the events. It was a terrible tragedy and an opportunistic crime. Other guardies spoke to the press off the record. One commented that Murphy was one of the most evil men he had come across, with another saying he hoped Murphy would never see the outside of a prison again. Later in the week, Elaine Kyo, writing for the Irish Examiner, spoke to a guard, a source from the Drogheda area. This guard said that as soon as he heard Michael Murphy was working on the site not far from Denor, he felt there was, quote, every chance he knew what had happened to Bettina. I was immediately afraid it would become a murder investigation. Elaine Kyo went on in her article to outline what was known of Michael Murphy's background. He was the third eldest of seven children and the eldest son in the family. Murphy had had a troubled childhood. He had gone to a special school for children with learning disabilities. 
He was 12 when he got his first conviction for theft. After this, he was sent to St. Joseph's Industrial School in Clonmel, where he stayed until he was 16. At 19, Murphy was convicted for assault and got a fine of £22. The following year, he was convicted of a breach of the peace. Then, three years later, in 1981, Michael Murphy was charged in relation to the killing of Catherine Carroll, who was better known as Kitty. Mrs. Carroll had been killed when she was attacked while walking home in Drogheda. Michael Murphy had been found guilty of manslaughter at trial. If you want to hear more details of that case, it will be outlined in the March guilt trip over on Patreon next week. As mentioned before, Michael Murphy served nine years of a 12-year sentence for Kitty Carroll's killing. A few years after his release in 1995, Murphy was convicted in relation to armed robberies in the Drogheda area, and then three years later was convicted of the assault on the two women in Drogheda. Garda sources also told reporter Elaine Kyo that Murphy was a suspect in two other sexual assaults that had occurred near Drogheda in 1997, around the time he was charged in relation to the assault on the two women in the town. Given the local talk and media reports indicating that Gardy had immediately thought of Michael Murphy as a chief suspect in Bettina's murder, Superintendent Fergus Doggett addressed this notion directly in an interview with Jimmy Cunningham, who had covered the trial for the Drogheda Independent. Superintendent Doggett explained that in reality the investigation into Bettina's disappearance, and then murder, had been a process of elimination, just good old-fashioned detective work. Gardy had had no prime suspect from the outset. Doggett pointed out that Gardy had first spoken to Murphy only on the 24th of October, as the investigation was progressed and Gardy moved through their various lines of inquiry. Murphy's hair sample had been collected on that date and then sent to the forensic laboratory. The sample was analysed within 24 hours and it had matched a DNA profile developed from Bettina's body. In the week after Michael Murphy's conviction, Jimmy Cunningham was also able to speak to Kitty Carroll's cousin. Sheila Coyle told the reporter, quote, When I think about what he did to Kitty and Bettina, it makes my skin crawl. Ms. Coyle recalled that at the trial in 1984, Murphy had sat quietly and simply stared into the middle distance or at his hands, just like he had done at his most recent court hearings. More generally, in light of Michael Murphy's previous convictions, there were calls from politicians for harsher sentencing for repeat offenders. John Deasy, Fine Gael TD and their spokesperson on justice as a member of the opposition party at the time, said that people who were identified as having a persistent criminal past involving serious crimes needed harsher sentences. Deasy asked, quote, What do you think is going to happen if such a person is released? Labour TD Joe Costello echoed these sentiments. On the government's part, Minister for Justice of the Day Michael McDool directed that the parole board have access to the books of evidence at parole hearings. Michael Murphy's legal team lodged notice of his intention to appeal in August of 2004. The appeal hearing occurred in late April of 2005, where judgment was reserved. Murphy's central ground of appeal had been that the contents of Murphy's Garda interviews should not have been allowed into evidence by the trial judge, as they had not been recorded as set out by the Garda regulations published in 1997. The judgment of the Criminal Court of Appeal was issued a month later, in May of 2005. In considering the argument set forth by Murphy's legal team, they opted to follow a section of the Criminal Justice Act which said that simple failure to follow regulations did not in itself render evidence gathered inadmissible. The fact that Gardy had failed to record the interviews did not in and of itself render the contents of the interviews inadmissible. The judges of the appeals court were satisfied that there had been no pressure or threat applied to Murphy during his questioning. In addition, there was no particular argument presented to them that what the court had heard during trial was not an accurate representation of what Murphy had actually said to Gardee. The judgment also pointed out that the incident in question had occurred before a May 2002 judgment of the Court of Appeal which underlined the importance of video recording interviews. However, the court went on in the judgment to issue a warning to Gardee that the electronic taping of interviews with suspects in serious crimes like murder 
was of the utmost importance and that this should be done in all cases if possible. On behalf of the three-judge panel, Mr Justice Kearns wrote that this strong position was taken not in order to imply that Gardy had been, quote, misbehaving in relation to taking confessions or in support of the view that Gardy often did things like this, but because it was, quote, to ensure that baseless allegations of mistreatment could easily be met with such recorded evidence, to give a strong position that justice was being carried out properly and that proper procedures had been adhered to and everything was done above board. In future, there would be a, quote, marked reluctance to comply with requirements of the Criminal Justice Act as amended other than as had been set out in regulations. Discretion in relation to a failure to record interviews would be exercised from that point on only when given a very good reason. The Irish Times went to the Gardaí for comment on the judgment and the press office told the paper that all interviews of suspects relating to crimes where a sentence would be more than five years were by that point videotaped. They said it was now normal procedure that all interviews for serious offences were to be recorded and in fact a steering committee who had looked into the issue found that over 96% of all Garda interviews were at that time recorded. On Sunday the 25th of September 2011, a memorial ceremony for Bettina was held in Denor on the 10th anniversary of her death. It was attended by around 150 people, including the German ambassador to Ireland. A letter sent by Cornelia on behalf of the Pöschel family was read to the crowd and a tree was planted by the ambassador next to the stone memorial that had been erected by the Denor community along the road where Bettina had been found. One woman who attended the service, Bridie Wogan, told the Irish Times that, although she had never known Bettina, she had decided that if she were to ever have a little girl, she would name her in Bettina's honour. Ms Wogan's daughter, Anna Bettina, laid a single red rose next to the monument bearing their shared name. In 2021, the 20-year anniversary of Bettina's death was marked in Denor once more. A local priest, Father Colm O'Mahony, said, quote, in many ways, our memorial today is very appropriate. Now more than ever, in all our news, we hear violence against women, young women who were taken too soon, out for a night out, meeting friends, whatever the occasion may be. We remember not just Bettina, but all young women, our sisters, our daughters, and those closest to us. We pray that Bettina may be an inspiration to young women to continue to follow their dreams and to continue to be brave in the world. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks this week goes out to Christine Hughes, Katie Kirby, Ali, Kate Gargulo, Rosalie Jane, Louise W., Courtney Simpson, and Carmelo Dwyer. Thanks to each and every one of you for signing up to support the show. It is hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going and along with my undying love for helping out you get those ad-free and bonus episodes as well as nifty merch. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash Mens pod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, BetterHelp. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So head to the show notes to check them out. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Mm-hmm.